Hi, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Felipe Tristan, and the clip of music you just heard was Symphony No. 2 by Borden. Today, we are happy to have Nick Armstrong, Artistic Director of the Orchestra in the studio, to talk to us about the 2017-2018 season. Also, we will talk to our newly appointed co-president of the BSO board, Sarah Richards, who is the principal second violinist in the orchestra. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Felipe. It's good to be here. Thank you. So tell us about what's in store for this year for the 2017-2018 season. Well, I feel like every time we start a season, I say the same thing, that it's a fabulous season with lots of great stuff. But <laughs> this year, it really, really is. We start the season on Sunday, October 29th at 2 p.m. And we're doing two symphonies that share an idea. It's a very tenuous connection. But both these symphonies have to do with the city of Linz in Austria. The first is uh -huh. Mozart's 36th Symphony. And he wrote it as a thank you gift to, I believe the man's name was Baron Thun, or Thun, who basically welcomed Mozart and his new wife, Costanza, into his home while they were visiting Linz. I'm not sure that it was actually their honeymoon, but definitely it was an early part of their relationship when they were visiting. And you can tell that from the symphony. It's full of good humor. It's full of great happiness, great joy. And it's a really a lovely, lovely symphony to listen to. I wouldn't say it's one of Mozart's masterpieces. Although there are people, I'm sure, who are listening who think that every symphony by Mozart is a masterpiece in this way, and I get that too. Um, the other is the first symphony of Anton Bruckner. Bruckner grew up in a very small village outside of Linz. I believe it's called Ansbach, but somebody will tell me that that's not the case. I'm willing to be corrected. Bruckner was essentially a self-educated musician. And he came to the symphony very much in the shadow of Beethoven. Of course, everybody who was writing symphonies in Germany at that time or Austria too, was living under the shadow of Beethoven, but also somewhat under the shadow of Brahms, also somewhat under the shadow of um, other people that were working around him writing symphonies. Uh -huh. And this symphony was written, it was actually his third shot at writing a symphony, and he destroyed the first two versions and decided to dedicate this symphony to the city of Linz, hence the subtitle for this too. It's very different from the Mozart. It's very different from Beethoven. It demands more of an audience and it actually demands more of an orchestra. So I decided to bring this to our players in the, in the Brooklyn Symphony for a couple it's of reasons. It's definitely a, ch a challenge. I think it's a great way to get everyone in very good playing shape. Yes, absolutely. It demands a lot of work outside of rehearsals for sure. Right. It's also much more abstract than you would think symphonies, for instance, of Beethoven. Every Beethoven symphony that we think of, we can hum the tunes to. We, we know that there are melodies, mm -hmm. even though that's not strictly the point. I want to use this symphony, and I want to use the Schumann symphony, which we're doing in the second concert, to kind of discuss with the audiences a little bit of what it means to write a symphony. What does a symphony in C minor mean? So I'm not going to give too much away now, because we have very little time on the, on the podcast, but that's something that as people listen to this podcast, I would like to think about, about what does that mean? What is it about harmony? What is it about the, the idea of a tonal center that we start off in one place and we go on a journey? And the journey, in Mozart's case, is pretty straightforward. In uh, Bruckner's case, it's much more complicated. What happens in the music, where we go, where, where, what he expects us to listen to, what he expects us to listen for, and how we process that journey to bring us back basically to where we started. Interestingly, the symphony says it's in C minor. It actually ends in C major. Right at the end of the symphony, we get one of these wonderful sunbursts of major tonality. A Picardy third type of thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Except that it takes a long time to get there. You're mentioning Picardy third, which in Baroque music is that lovely major chord that you get at the end to kind of settle everything in a nice, polite kind of way. This is much bigger than that. But again, we're getting perhaps a little too complicated. 
So Mozart and Bruckner, these two wonderful symphonies for the first concert. Second concert in December, a fabulous soloist. I'm really thrilled that we're going to be welcoming Tim Cobb to the orchestra. Wow. He is the principal bass of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, and he is coming to play Giovanni Bottasini's second concerto for double bass and orchestra. And Bottasini, I think it's fair to say he's the Paganini of the double bass. Right. So where you, you don't exactly stick the double bass under your chin. <laughs> Nonetheless, you're required to do the same kind of fireworks that Paganini requires violinists to do. Um, we've programmed a new work for the orchestra. We're still waiting on that. We don't have details about that. So that's going to be a TBA. It's going to be something for people to keep their eyes open for. Especially commissioned for? Not commissioned or... so okay. much, but maybe a second performance. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. We like to do that because a lot of composers who get first performances often find it very hard to get the second performance. Yeah. Yeah. So we're keeping our eyes open for that. I have a few things in mind, but we haven't reached a decision about that yet. The last work on this program is Schumann's Fourth Symphony. And again, going back to this notion of what is a symphony about, Schumann decided that he wanted to write the usual four-movement symphony. And I say usual, and we'll talk again about that when the time comes. But the model for writing a symphony from the very early days of Haydn was to write in four movements of varying ideas and very various very, feeling fast, yes. slow, dance movements, not dance movements, and so forth. Schumann decided in the symphony to take two or three ideas and make them central to all four movements. And that's almost a new idea. Hector Berlioz in his Symphony Fantastique did the same thing, he made a, a symphony that was built on ideas which he called idées fixes, mm -hmm. these recurring ideas throughout, in his case, five movements. Schumann does this in a very classical sense of creating a symphony. It's not programmatic. It doesn't tell a story like Berlioz's symphony does, but it does tie all four movements together thematically so mm -hmm. that as we sit through the symphony, we don't feel one chapter closing and a new one opening. We feel as, a new, as we move forward through the symphony that every new movement, every new gesture refers back to something we've already heard. So that's, that's also a bit of a challenge to an audience to listen for that. So that's something I'm hoping audiences will get. What symphony is this from Schumann? This is Schumann's fourth symphony. Fourth symphony. Is that nicknamed It something? does not have a nickname, which is interesting because to, at least two Usually, of the others do, right? The Spring and the Rhenish. Right. So by not having a, a name to it, and especially in the middle of a romantic it's even movement, more it feels abstract. like it's more, more an abstract. It's about the music, not about a story. Uh-huh. So I'm very much excited about that concert, too. We get to concert number three, and that's your concert. You are our guest conductor this year. That's right, and I'm very much looking forward and excited. Well, you've chosen a very colorful program and a very difficult program, <laughs> which I <laughs> think the orchestra will, will rise to the challenge very much. I was looking to work with the winds in a piece, which will be the Strauss Serenade, the Winds Serenade, and a piece for the strings, which will be Barber's beloved Adagio. And then orchestral pieces for the full orchestra, Bernstein's West Side Story, Symphonic Dances, and Pines of Rome by Respighi. You're taking us all over the world for this then. <laughs> yes, the whole tour. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that very much. It'll be a great, great program to come listen to. The fourth concert of the season in April, I'm really thrilled about that I'm finally doing this. I have been in love with this piece of music forever. Since I was, since even before my undergraduate days, it's the story of Oedipus Rex as set to music by Igor Stravinsky. Mm. And this is a joint concert with the Empire City Men's Chorus, and their music director is Vince Peterson, and I'm very excited about working with him. Huge project. It's a huge project. It's, it's about a 55-minute piece. It calls for a vast orchestra, tri triple winds, so three flutes, three oboes, three clarinets, three bassoons, so forth, large brass section, good piano part, and some really wonderfully challenging music. But the story itself and the way that Stravinsky sets the music for the story is really beautifully done. Stravinsky as a composer went through, in the course of the 20th century, he went through pretty much every musical style that was available to him, from serialism late in his career, Russian uh, Orientalism early in his career with the Firebird, 
and on and on and on. And in the middle of his career, he decided to, to go all the way back to classical music, to what we call classical Viennese classical music, even to the Baroque. So he was using inspiration from Pergolesi in Pulcinella, for instance, a whole variety of, of pieces. He wrote He wrote the symphony in C, he wrote symphony in E-flat, that all refer back somehow to a true classical music. Mm-hmm. And this piece, the Oedipus Rex, is probably the culmination of that neoclassical period of Stravinsky's music. And without wanting to sound condescending, because that's not the point, but this music is very accessible. The story that it tells, the story of this poor man who thinks that he's a great hero, that thinks he's doing the right thing, that thinks he's obeying all the, all the laws of the gods and simply doesn't understand, as the narration says, a plaything of the gods, and that they set out to destroy him. And that story is told so beautifully in the music and so painfully in the music, and yet so joyously in terms of the end of it, the resolution, the catharsis is a great mm-hmm. word that's used to describe Greek tragedy. The last concert um, is dedicated to music from France, really from 1910 through about 1930, a very specific period of time. Very, very potent period in French music. We are offering music that's by well-known composers, but perhaps not such well-known music of theirs. The first piece that I'm doing on the program is a delightfully funny piece. It's called The Divertissement by Jacques Hibert. There was a group of composers known as The Six, Les Six, mm-hmm. that involved Boulanc and Chaminard, and, and of course my mind has gone blank, but Hibert was sort of the great grandfather of the group. He really encouraged them, he really wanted them to come together and really rethink French music, really take it away from the big sort of heavy-duty romantic sound that had been happening. We think of Saint-Saëns, we think of César Franck, big organ sounds that came out of France right, before that. Right. And he really wanted to get away from that. And of course, the mood of the time after the First World War, especially in France, which had suffered so much, the mood in Paris at that time was very lightweight, very lighthearted. It was a real attempt to get away from that heavy-duty everything, the destruction of the war. It makes perfect sense. Hibert's style is so excessively colorful, yes. I would even say, yeah. Yeah. in a good way. <laughs> colorful and also just very much tongue-in-cheek, all of it. Yeah. So the divertissement has a gallop, it has a waltz, it has all the stuff that you expect from sort of cabaret music of the time. I was approached about a year and a half ago by a singer, his name is Sarah Nelson Craft, mm-hmm. a fabulous mezzo-soprano, and she said, I've heard about the orchestra, I would love to work with you. So we talked, and she said, I would love to do the Chant d'Auvergne of Cantaloupe. And I only knew two or three of them. There are, there are five books of them, and there are six or seven each book, so there's a huge number of them. But I only knew one or two, but the, the ones I knew, I loved. I said, let's look at that, let's make this work. And so we programmed a set of seven of them for this concert. And it just so happens, oddly enough, that to, to get just a little down home, a little local about this. But it turns out that Sarah Nelson Craft was actually a student of... Sarah Richards at St. Anne's School really? all those many years ago. <laughs> oh, my gosh, which we're going to be talking to her just in a few minutes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. So that is a connection, but it's not in any way a musical connection. It just so happens. Here we are. Again, we're talking color. We're talking the orchestrations. Cantalib is not a well-known composer otherwise. He's very famous for these pieces. He's extremely well-known pieces. Mm-hmm. But he's written maybe a handful of other things that once in a while somebody in some obscure part of the world will decide to program. program. Maybe it'll be us one day too. We can add us what's that list. Uh-huh. But his command of the orchestra in these pieces is absolutely beautiful. They're stunningly beautiful, and they're typically French. He, he mastered that French sound that Debussy also mastered, that Ravel mastered in his orchestral works. It's almost as if he's the same person in a, with a different name. It's very, yeah. very curious. I'm now very curious to listen to these pieces yeah. by Cantaloupe. Okay. Well, I, encar- I would encourage people to listen to our conversation, too. I would encourage them to listen ahead of time, because they're, they're certainly worth more than one listening. So mm-hmm. if they come unprepared, 
This is the concert in June. This is the concert in June, June 10th. We're following that with two very quiet pieces by Sati, the two, two of the gymnopédie that actually Debussy orchestrated. Much of Sati's music is written for piano. And a lot of it was orchestrated by other composers who were friends of his. And Debussy did a very simple, very straightforward orchestrations of these two gymnopédie. Gymnopédie, by the way, are the dances, according to Sati, that were performed by athletes in the gymnasia in Greece. Mm-hmm. I don't know quite what he had in mind when he thought that, but that's the story behind them. And then we actually end the program with a piece of Debussy, the Printemps, his depiction of spring. That's very much French from all perspectives. It couldn't be any more French if it tried. So looking back on this, on, on, on what we've gone through in the last few minutes together, I'm, I'm very excited about this year. I think we have a great, great season. We have great players. We have great soloists coming in. Agreed. Artistic Director Nick Armstrong, thank you very much for being here today telling us about the season 2017-2018. Very exciting season, and uh, we look forward to another successful year. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Philip. It's great to be here with you. I'm here now with Sarah Richards, principal second violin in the orchestra, and now co-president of the BSO board. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. How are you today? I'm very fine. Tell us, where are you from? I was born in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, which is smack dab in the middle of the state, an hour north of Harrisburg. Uh-huh. People may know it because it's the home of Bucknell University, where my father was a professor. What did your father teach? He taught economics. And what did your mother do? She was a homemaker and kind of raised my sister and myself. When we sort of became older and more independent, she did what she really loved. I think had a had a long time love for it, which was tax preparation. Oh. <laughs> she got certified to work for H&R Block, and she did that for a few years. So you were surrounded by numbers in a way. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> and so where exactly did music come in your life? Well, I think it really came from the fact that I'm a joiner. I like to be a member of things. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when I was in third grade, the string teacher came down to the elementary school and said, hey, anyone want to learn how to play the violin? You could start this summer. And so a few friends and I did that. So we were, I guess, eight going into fourth grade. And that's when I started playing violin. And Loved it. You know, it was really fun. But then when we got to middle school, I kind of sized up the situation and realized that the cooler kids were not the string players. They were the winds and brass players, it seemed to I me. I that. Yeah, often. and I know you're uh-huh. a food player, so I'm sure you identify with the cool group. <laughs> but I didn't want to give up the violin, but I wanted to get more involved with, like, the marching band. When when it came around to high school time, I wanted to be ready for that. And concert band and jazz ensemble stuff. So in seventh grade, I started playing the oboe. Because you wanted to be cooler? Because I wanted to be cooler and oh just be in God. more group. Yes. Nobody told me that there is no oboe in the marching band. <laughs> they didn't uh-huh. tell me that. So I just thought it was a beautiful instrument. And I guess because I was used to hearing, you know, a lot of classical music and also often the oboe stands out, I thought, oh, that's a nice instrument. So I started playing the oboe. I took to it pretty quickly. At the end of seventh grade, I won the Most Improved Player Award oh. of all the band players. So then in eighth grade, you know, one more year to high school and be in the marching band, that's when my uh, the band director said, oh, you know, and by the way, 
there is no oboe in the marching band. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what do you want to do about that? <laughs> so I said, oh, my, oh my gosh, so what do you recommend? And he said, well, I recommend the saxophone. So I said, okay, well, I'll do the saxophone. And so I played the tenor sax. I started taking that in eighth grade, still playing the violin and the oboe and now the tenor sax. So then I could join the jazz ensemble, which we had in middle school, and the concert oh, I band. I am eligible. <clears throat> I tell you. Oh, and then one more thing. In Girl Scouts, which I was a member, there was a fife and drum band corps. You know, we'd march in the you know, Fourth of July parade or whatnot. And I wasn't really up for learning how to play the fife or the flute, but I could play the drum. I thought, oh, well, that's something I could pick up. So then I learned how to play like a military kind of snare drum oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in a parade. So I kind of have all the bases covered. I've got percussion, winds. Oh, I don't have a brass instrument, but my son plays the trumpet. Wow. So there. So did it. you accomplish your mission of being cool <clears throat> in the end? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so I played violin and oboe and saxophone through 10th grade at Lewisburg Public High School. And then I made a move and I went to a boarding school up in Connecticut. Mm. And I think the reason I got in so late in the game, because I applied like in May, the year before I wanted to go, they were quite desperate for a violinist because their solid violinist was graduating. And so I would be coming in as a junior. And so really the string director is the one who really kind of pulled strings to get me in because of my violin, even though I didn't have to audition. He just took my word for it that I played the violin. <laughs> I played pretty well. So he said, okay, great. Come on in. You're in. <laughs> You're in. So, um, so at that point, I stopped playing in the fife and drum band <laughs> core. And I also stopped playing the oboe. And I owned a saxophone. Like my parents had bought me a saxophone. But I didn't play it regularly. I played the violin in a chamber group, and I played in the Wallingford Symphony, and it was all really fun. Oh, and I played in the New Haven Youth Symphony, too. So then I went to Oberlin for college, which, as you know, has a conservatory. I was going to the college, but I loved the idea of going because I would have access to all these musicals. The music. And so I was going to go it's, in. It's one of the best <clears throat> conservatories it in is, the country. It is. Had I auditioned, I would not have gotten into the conservatory, I'm sure. But a large percentage of the college students do music on the side. Mm -hmm. And they either participate in ensembles through the conservatory or they just enjoy attending concerts that are at the conservatory. So when I got on campus, I did audition for the orchestra and I auditioned for lessons. And I got neither of those things. And it was a little blow because I was used to being you know, active, active and, and pretty good in high school. And then you go from being a big fish in a small sea to a very tiny fish in a big sea. So there I was in Oberlin with my violin, but nowhere to play it. And I did sing. There was a big community choral ensemble, so I sang in that. But Oberlin has a winter term program in January. And one thing that was being offered, I must have seen a sign, you know, on the bulletin board in the conservatory, it was learn how to play the viola da gamba. Beginning Viola da Gamba, winter oh, term project. I get said, oh, another instrument. Get another instrument nice. and go back to being a big fish in a small sea. <laughs> so, Because there weren't too many gamba players back then. And Oberlin owned a lot of instruments. So it's not like I had so to provide my... Right, to... I'd have access to instruments and it was great. So I'm surprised like, how really easily it did come to me. So by the end of the month in that January of... Let's see, 1982. I was playing pretty decently. And then there was a viola consort, a viola da gamba consort that I played in, I think, then the rest of my years at Oberlin. And also, the few of us who did play the bass viola were in high demand by conservatory students who had to give their junior C to recitals and wanted to play like a Baroque or a Renaissance piece, and they needed uh. a continual accompaniment. And the viola majors didn't want to 
do uh-huh. that, but uh-huh. people like me would be fine. Dedicated to the instrument. <laughs> Dedicated, yeah, decent course. enough that we could play a bass line. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did perform a couple times just playing a bass line. Nice. <laughs> with a singer and or so what were you <clears throat> ma- majoring in? So my major, I went thinking I would major in, now we would call it neuroscience, but back then they called it psychobiology because I thought the brain was amazing and, and I loved science. That was and always something... Throughout high school, that I really liked, and so I, you know, my first year, freshman year, I took chemistry and biology and psychology and probably English, and everything went pretty well. But then sophomore year, you had to take organic chemistry and like higher level biology and other things, and that was really the stumbling block for me. I was like, this is not working for me. I'm not enjoying What happened? this. Well, the way I figure it is. Organic chemistry really comes more easily to people who have really good spatial sense and can kind of see things in their head three-dimensionally, and I don't have that skill. <laughs> so it was a real struggle for me. And so I dropped it, and that meant then I couldn't be a psychobiology major. So you had I, to choose a different path. Exactly. So I just decided to streamline and just stick with the psychology part because that was interesting to me. But I didn't really want to be a psychologist when I got out of school. The interesting thing is my roommate who now comes to our BSO concerts. Hi, Jennifer, all the time, <laughs> and her husband. <laughs> She was a biology major and is now a psychologist. I was a psychology major, and now and I now teach you... marine biology. <laughs> wow. So I kind of switched. <laughs> But it just goes to show you're not locked into what you majored in in college. You went on that path in your career, and then did you continue playing the violin all these years? So through my four years at Oberlin, I only played the viola de gamba until my senior year. Mm-hmm. And by then, I figured out that there were a couple musical groups that needed even not-so-good violinists. Conservatory-level people were not interested in playing in these groups. And the main group that I discovered was the Gilbert and Sullivan Players. So they would do these student productions, and they needed a pit orchestra. And to be honest, I'm not a big Gilbert and Sullivan fan at (laughs) all, (laughs) but I really kind of wanted to get back to playing violin, and it was was an opportunity. And a lot of my friends were in in the... chorus part. So I did play in one or two of their productions, productions, and that sort of got me back into the violin. But then when I graduated, I wanted to live abroad for a year, but only spoke English. So my choices were rather limited, and I chose England because that seemed like a good fit. <laughs> so I went to England, and I was a mother's helper there for nine months, lived with a family, took care of three boys. I was 22 at the time. And part of my reason for doing that, A, I wanted to live abroad. B, I wanted to see how well I liked children because I was thinking I wanted to go into teaching, but I hadn't really spent much time with young children. So I thought, well, this would be a way to try it out. I didn't really play the violin that year when I was abroad. And then I came back to the States, and now I was 23. But because I had traveled that summer, it was a little too late to look for a teaching job that September because I came back like in August. And so I did get something lined up for the following fall and moved to Brooklyn and That's when I started playing in the Brooklyn uh-huh. Symphony Orchestra. So that was like 1987, I think. Yeah. 1987. So this is your 30th season. Exactly. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank That's you. fantastic. I think Steve Belenko has been in longer than I have, but I think I'm the second most veteran uh-huh. member, although more I'm not the second oldest. Member. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the second oldest, but I'm the second no, no, longest no. playing. Yeah. <laughs> the second most senior member. Yeah. And so you moved to Brooklyn 
joined the BSO, and what were you doing at the time? What, what job? Well, it's actually the same job I'm still doing now. Ah, <laughs> so that's I've amazing. had the same job. This is my 31st year teaching at St. Anne's School in Brooklyn uh-huh. Heights. So it's a job I've loved. There was a science teacher who quit two weeks before school was going to start at the mm-hmm. end of August in 1987. So they were kind of desperate. And because I had majored in psychology, remember, I didn't major in biology or chemistry or physics, I might not have looked so outstanding on paper. But again, they were kind of desperate. And <laughs> St. Anne's loved that I went to Oberlin and I played the viola da gamba. It's that is what got me the job wow. <laughs> to teach science at St. Anne's. We are very lucky to, to, to have you at <laughs> well, BSO and be principal, mm. second violin, now co-president of the board. And so tell us about the orchestra. How has it changed over the last three decades? Mm-hmm. So when I joined the orchestra, there was a board of non-players. And that was a big difference from what we have now. So I'm not exactly sure why we transitioned to a player organized board. It could be that this group of people, I think maybe they had just been doing it for a, a long time. You know, and when you're not invested, you're if you're not a player, it's kind of easy to There are to certain walk. things that yeah. you may not Right. You understand. can sort of walk away. You don't feel quite as involved, I would think. Right. I guess they saw their job more as like raising money and financial health of the orchestra. But I think maybe they all just decided to retire. And so a few of us stepped up and said, well, We can't let the orchestra die. We have to keep it going. So we'll just make a new board with players. Uh So I think I was one of the early player board members. What role did you have then? Uh, Well, I was treasurer at one time, and I have been secretary. And I was president a long time ago, 25 years ago. I wasn't the first player president, but I was one a long time ago. You know, back then, things were just so much different and harder, honestly. Like putting programs together— was literally cutting and pasting paper and, and gluing it onto paper and then running it off on a Xerox machine. Okay. Or we take it to a printer and let them do it and sort of bind the programs. I don't think computers had been invented yet. <laughs> or we certainly didn't have them. So <laughs> that was just a lot of work. And you had to do that for each program. So I remember spending a lot of time doing that. I don't even know what role that was of mine. but So it was all hands on deck. Everybody does and helps yeah. and plays. Very much community-like group. Very good. And so... You went through all these roles over the years, and now you are Mm co-president along with With Jill Jefferson. Correct, who is also a past president. Very good. So what's in store for the orchestra? What can you share with us? Well, I have a big announcement, and I think I can say this because we finalized the contract. I don't know if it's actually been signed, but going back to the orchestra's 40th anniversary, which was a few years ago, Susan Abdelizer, who's another second violinist, Mm -hmm. she and her husband made a documentary film about the orchestra. So this film got made. It took her quite a while to interview all the people and get the history and then do the editing and da, da, da. And it did take a while to make. It unfortunately never got shown during the 40th year, which was kind of the plan. So now it's a few years down the road. But Jill reached out to the Alamo Draft House uh-huh. and asked if it was possible for a private group to rent a theater and show a film. And they said, absolutely, yes, we love working with yes, the community. Yes, that's amazing. We can do this for you. So on January 24th, uh-huh. I believe it's a Wednesday, we will be in not the smallest theater, but I think the second, I think it holds 111 or so people. Mm-hmm. And it will be a fundraiser. So you'll buy your ticket ahead of time. You'll get a seat at the movie theater. 
it will come with food and drink, as oh, they do at the Alamo Draft House. Perfect. <laughs> we will see this amazing movie, and there will be live music, too. So there will be some chamber group or Look groups playing up front. Yeah, so please put that on your calendar, and I'm sure in so a short time. So that's January 24, 2018. Yep, you'll be able to buy tickets through our website. At the, the Alamo, Draft, Alamo House, Draft House, which is in the Fulton Mall area near Junior's Restaurant of Brooklyn. Fantastic. Yeah, and I go well, there all the time. We'll make sure that we let everyone know for our fundraiser this amazing news. Thanks for for sharing. Thank you very much, Sarah. It has been a pleasure to talk to you and hear your story. And, well, it's an honor to speak to a senior member of the BSO. And we look forward to this year under your tutelage, as you say. (laughs) Thank you. Please visit brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of this podcast and to purchase tickets for our upcoming concert on October 29th at the Brooklyn Museum. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Felipe Tristan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>